Thank you so much for taking time to be with us, whether you're here um, in the building or if you're joining us online. My name is Davy, um, and I am uh, have the privilege of getting to share God's word with you. Um, if you've been joining us, uh, then you know that we are looking through the uh, story of Abram and Genesis. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14 um, this evening. Um, and I'm going to preach from this title, A Lot to Learn. We'll see what that means. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, and we're going to read the whole 24 verses. Um, and when I... Um, Realized that two weeks ago, Pastor Pip had preached um, the last time in this message he had preached on Genesis 13. So I realized, okay, I'm the next one. So read Genesis 14 and realized this is like a history lesson, a geography lesson, and like a languages lesson all in one. So I'm going to read this, um, but please forgive me if I get all of the names wrong. Um, Genesis chapter 14 and verse 1. At that time when I'm Raphael... Uh, was king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elisar, Kedorlamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlamor, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedorlamor and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zezites in Ham, the Emites in Sheveh Karathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalites, Amalekites and the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedorlamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the king, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food. Then they went away. Verse 12, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed, routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobda, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Now, after Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, 
Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to them who went with me to Enor, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Wow. Oh, thank you. And so I want to look at this title, A Lot to Learn, because Lot had a lot to learn, and we can learn a lot from Lot. Say that five times fast. <laughs> See, I want to, before I actually get into the message, can I try to simplify this? Because I don't know if you're like me, but when I read 24 verses like that, I was like, I haven't a scooby. What is going on there? So I'm going to try and break it down, this passage, simply to you. And Leah, if you could put up like the red and blue corner picture, let me just, for the sake of clarity, we have a red corner and a, a blue corner. Hopefully this is not how you read this passage from now on. But just to give a bit of clarity, we have in the red corner these four Mesopotamian kings, Amraphel, Ariok, Keterlemor, and Tidal. If you want to um, correct my um, pronunciation of that, that's okay. But we have these four kings together, okay? And then in the blue corner, we have Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeber, and the king of Zoar. So we have five kings and four on the other side. And these, this red corner group almost were ruling over the blues for 12 years, we read. The blue corner, forgive me for this red and blue language, but it just separates it. The blue corner kings were subject for 12 years. We read in the 13th year that the blue corner then rebelled against them. And in the 14th year, the red, the, the, the four kings of Mesopotamia then went uh, on a rampage of taking um, some land. If you could put the next image up, Leah, I think it's the, um, the map, awesome. So in the top of this, you will see a red circle. That is where the four Mesopotamian kings were roughly uh, from. That was where their area was. The blue circle now, it is where the five um, southern kings, roughly where their areas were. And if you can see, down the right-hand side of this map, this is a, a, a few arrows coming round, down to near the bottom of this um, picture. And this we, we see in verses um, 5, 6, and 7, we, we read of these this red corner going on and just taking over land, left, right, and center. They're taking over the Amorites, the Malachites, all these different people, and they're just taking over territory. And then they come back up to where you see the blue circle. And then there's this sort of fight. We read of them that they come to a stand. They come to, to ready to fight. The blue corner people saying, we're going to fight against you. And the red corner's like, well, we're going to take over you. And it, we, we read in verse um, 9 that they come together. In verse 10, we read that there's these tar pits everywhere. And we don't read of much of a fight because we read of this, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. They just leg it. They run, whether there is vast numbers of the red corner people or not, we don't know, but they just decide to flee. And they run and get, and the red corner people come and take all the spoils of war for themselves. But in one of the people escape, they, someone runs to Abram and says, Abram, they have taken Lot. 
They have taken your nephew Lot, they've taken him as a spoil of war, and they're taking him away. And you can see the arrows, they start going from the blue circle all the way back up to the north. They go all the way back up there. And we read that Abram immediately gets 318 trained men and goes in pursuit of his nephew. He goes in pursuit of them, and in the middle of the night, he, he takes the 318 men he has, and they split at night, and they, they basically win this fight against the four Mesopotamian kings. Takes the spoils of war back, which is including Lot and all the women and children, and brings them back. Now, on their way back, you could imagine this would be quite a victory. Abrams just went and fought against these four kings with 318 men. Quite a victory. And he's met by two kings, the king of Sodom, and the king of Salem. The king of Salem is Melchizedek, and he speaks and blesses Abram. The king of Sodom, he comes and says, here, just give us the people. You can have everything else. But Abram says, I want nothing. I don't want anything. So that you can never say to me that you made me rich. And so that is just a bit of a picture of what's happened in this passage. And that will be helpful as we break it down and see what are some of the lessons that we can learn. Because Lot is in the middle of this story. And Lot was taken as captive. He was taken away as a spoil of war. Now I wonder if Lot had have known that this was going to happen. Would he have chosen to pitch his tent near Sodom? Pastor Pip looked at it two weeks ago. But I wonder if, if Lot had have known that this was going to happen. Would he have done this? You see, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? How many of us would make different choices in our lives if we could go back? Relationships we wouldn't get into. Decisions that we wouldn't make if we knew that was the outcome. Words that we wouldn't say. Outfits we wouldn't wear. If we knew that that's how it looked in the photo, you'd think, why on earth did you let me out of the house like that? Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And it's only in the rear view mirror that we can really look back and learn from our mistakes. Isn't that right? However, we can definitely help ourselves make less mistakes. And to learn some lessons from this story, we need to look back to chapter 13. If you have a Bible, can you look back to Genesis 13, verse 10? And the first lesson that we want to learn, and the first thought and point I want to make is, it's not what it seems. It's not what it seems. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 13, we read that Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This is this time where the land at the minute is too small for Abram and Lot and all their possessions to stay there. And so Abram decides and says, Lot, like, listen, this area that we're in is too small, but the whole land is big enough. So you pick an area that you want to go. And we read that Lot looks around and sees that this area near the Jordan was well watered. It looked, Lot looked at this land and assumed that it was good. But friends, many things that we see and look at are not what they seem. And just a, a, a second here, Lee is going to play a, a video that's going to come on the screen. And it's this video about TV commercials. And really interesting to see um, some of the tips and tricks of how they um, make things look not what it actually is. Lee, if you could play that video, please.
I think, I think that's, that's it. it. Awesome. awesome. If only they took that long to make your burger. Well, not that they had the wee cocktail sticks. No one would appreciate that. But look at so many of these things. What, well, what we see and what we look at is not what it seems. And so many things, not just in, in commercials and real life as that examples, but we have biblical examples of this, of what people look at and what they see is not what it seems. On the screen will come up Genesis 3, verse 6. Eden, or Eve is in the garden, told that you can eat from every tree except this one tree. This is the one that you cannot eat. And look at it says in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Looked good, but it wasn't. Looked appealing, looked the right thing, but it wasn't. First Samuel verse six, chapter 16, verse 6, another passage you'll be familiar with. Samuel called by God to come and anoint a new king of Israel, told that it's in the house of Jesse. Comes into Jesse and says, do you have any sons? Says yes, and he brings all the sons in, and when, it says when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Saw him, something about his appearance stood out, but then we know that God, the, the famous line God says is, don't look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But there's something in both of these stories visually that they look and it seems right, but it's not. There's a lot of things, guys, in our lives that seem good, but aren't God. That relationship seems good. That decision seems good. That website or image makes us feel good. Spending money on that seems a good idea. This land looked good to Lot. It seemed the right thing for him to go for. But again, we know in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. See, there are many choices and decisions that we can make in life that seem, appear, and look right, but in the end aren't right for us. And the first lesson that we need to learn is that not everything is as it seems. Very often, we can dive into decisions and choices because it looks good or it feels right. Or very often, guys, we can make perceptions about situations because of what it looks like. We perceive something as this or perceive something as that based on what it looks like to us. And our lesson is that we need to look at things through God's eyes. We need to look at things from his perspective, not rush in and hastily make a decision based on what we see or perceive, but we need to see things through God's eyes. And sometimes the best piece of advice that we can have in order to see things as God sees them is the second thought I want to make tonight, is to wait and see. Wait and see. Imagine if Lot just waited to see what would happen with this land of the Jordan. Lot may have realized that this land wasn't all that it seemed simply by him waiting. You see, we live in a culture of haste. I've mentioned it before. A culture that lacks patience and hates waiting. In fact, we live in a culture that also would rather replace with a new thing rather than repair the old thing. 
A lot of the older generation are, are much better at actually taking something and saying, do you know what, it's not broken, we just we need to fix it. Whereas sometimes I feel like my generation and around us is like, it's easier to replace and get something new. It's re- easier to replace with a new thing rather than repair the old thing because we do not like waiting. Sometimes it's quicker to just order like a new pair of jeans than to try and fix the old ones. That's why I have like all the holes in my jeans. I don't have them now. It's easier to just get like a repl- replace a new phone rather than repair the screen. Sometimes it's quicker to do that. We just don't have the time for that. And we live in that culture. But sometimes the wisest piece of advice to give someone making a decision is wait and see. Wait and see how it pans out. Wait and see what happens. Give it a bit of time. So often when we're making decisions or choices in our lives, we are often in a highly emotional state. And very rarely do we make good and wise choices when we're highly emotional. Sometimes good advice then is to wait and let the dust settle. Wait and see how it pans out. In fact, by waiting to see, sometimes we might notice something that we never have. By waiting, by pausing, we might notice something that we've never seen before. Another, I'm going to play another clip for you on the screen. This time it's of a movie. And sure, what are we, March? It's okay to play Christmas movies in March, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to play a clip from a well-known movie that you've, you might remember called Elf. Um, and then I'm going to pause it and explain something, and then we'll play it again, because you might notice something you never had. If we could play that, please. So pause it earlier. I don't know if you noticed, but did anyone see the guy who shouldn't have been in the shot? No. Okay. So what I'm going to do is again, we're going to play it, but I want you to look at the left-hand side of the screen, okay? And I want you, as the guy Michael is walking away and Buddy the Elf is chasing him, I want you to keep an eye on the left-hand side, and you will just notice um, a guy standing in a grey sweatshirt with a yellow cap. Now. He is not like a person in the shot. He is part of like the stage crew who shouldn't be there. So if we'll play it and I'll get Leah to pause it. Play from there, Leah. All right, Leah, if you could pause it. I don't know if you can just see to the left of this green bush, you can sort of see a bit of white or it's like a gray sweatshirt. I'm going to, in a couple of seconds, ask Leah to play it. And you will notice a guy realize I shouldn't be here and like panic and turn away. So play. Oh, you shouldn't be there. And so you would never have noticed that randomly watching it. But when you pause it and go back and look at it in a different way, you see something you've never noticed before. All by pausing, all by waiting, all by taking our time. And I wonder if Lot could have been in that similar situation. If he had have just waited, in Genesis 13, 10, where he's looking around and thinking, this place, this looks good for me, this area might be the right area. I wonder if he waited and saw, well, maybe this 
Maybe this works out in a way that actually I don't know if I do want to make that decision. We do it very often in, in our, our youth ministry in 412. Anytime we come to, to give someone an area of responsibility or to pick leaders or to give someone an opportunity to do some stuff, we suggest who might be good to do this. We throw around a few names. And then what we do is we don't jump into decision. We pause. We wait. And the amount of times over the years waiting to see what happens has been some of the wisest decisions that we've made because you see what happens in weeks and God maybe confirms some stuff or then we think maybe it's just not the right time yet. All because we would wait and see. Waiting is wise. If only Lot had have waited and watched how things panned out, he might have made a wiser decision. Lot might have realized that Sodom was wicked. Lot might have saw that the people were sinning against God. Friends, in here online, maybe the greatest thing that you can take from tonight is wait and see. If you have a decision to make in your life, maybe you just need to pause and wait and see how things pan out and you might notice something that you never had before. The third lesson to learn is about the warning shot. The warning shot. Because in our story, we see these two, these two groups, the red corner and the blue corner, fight it out. And, and the, the, the red corner take over, and they start to take the spoils of war. And in verse 12, we read that they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So after the four kings of Mesopotamia defeat the five southern kings, they begin to take their spoils of war. Now we must understand that as much as this was a shock and a surprise to Lot, this wasn't a surprise to God. In fact, this was God's warning shot to Lot. A warning shot about his poor decision of pitching his tent near Sodom, where the people were sinning greatly against God. God was using the, his captivity as a warning shot against being in an area that wouldn't benefit him. Sometimes, not all the times, but there are moments where God tries to get our attention because of the severity of our poor decisions. See, here's how good God is. If Lot only waited to see what God would say or show him about the land that he wanted to take, he might have noticed how wicked Sodom was and he might have chosen it, but he did he chose to be selfish and think, this is good for me. And he went and lived there. And yet, God gave him a second chance. We know the rest of the story. And so we know that Abram goes and rescues him. And looking back, we see God giving Lot a second chance by rescuing him through Abram. But this was also a warning shot. This was a warning shot saying, you need to be careful. We see this in other examples in scripture, friends. We see this when, when Jonah flees from God. God gives him a command, what does he do? He flees and doesn't go to Nineveh. And God doesn't destroy him. God doesn't kill him. What he does is he sends a fish. As a reminder, it's a warning shot saying, you need to be careful. You need to remember, I am in charge. And this is what I am calling you to do. Lot shouldn't have pitched his tent near Sodom. Never mind living there. Yet God was giving a warning shot, trying to get his attention, trying to get his attention to make better choices, to get out of Sodom. A guy called John Corshin says this, and it's on the screen, this quote, if we learn in the scripture, we wouldn't have to learn in the storm. If we learned in the sanctuary, we wouldn't have to learn in the storm. God tries to speak to us and gives us warnings through Scripture. If we would sit and read it and listen to it and make sense of it, then we wouldn't have to go through some storms of life to learn. If we would hear what God is maybe saying to us in, in church or in our quiet times with Him, then we wouldn't have to maybe go through some aspects and storms of life. There's some moments in life that God allows us to face 
in order to teach us some lessons. Now, please don't misconstrue my words, friends. I'm not saying that every storm that you go through is God teaching a lesson, but there are certain things that God will use to discipline his children. Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God sometimes uses our situations as warning shots in our life, and we need to notice the signs. What relationships in our lives bring a lot of trouble? What situations in your life do you just have zero peace in? What company are you not comfortable in? What conversations do you know aren't good? The fourth lesson is about the willing servant. The willing servant. And this is after Lot is taken away. And one of the guys escapes and comes to Abram and says, there is someone, you need, your, your, your nephew's been taken, you need to go and help him. And we see that immediately Abram springs into action. And he goes in pursuit. It says as far as Dan. The journey that he goes from where he's originally staying is around 160 miles he travels. 160 miles to rescue Lot, and he only has about 318 men to do so. Whether it was based upon faith that he felt God spoke to him, or it was honoring his family, it was still a very willing venture for Abram to go for a loved one. How far would you, go, would you be willing to go to help your family? How far would you be willing to go to help a friend? How far would you be willing to go to help a foe? How far would you be willing to go to help a stranger in need? See, the stranger in need, those things were kind of like, nah, not really. It's not really my business. We had just assumed that it's not our business to maybe help all of those people in need. But Martin Luther King says this, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? See, this is a picture of Abram, the willing servant, willing to leave his convenience for his family, willing to go as far as necessary, willing to risk his life for law. You see, Abram, when he was leaving, didn't know that he was going to definitely win this victory, but he was willing to jump up and go from where he was to rescue his nephew, not sure of the outcome. And he was willing to risk his life. Who could you go the extra mile for, friends? Who is in a dark place that you could help rescue? Who needs a checkup, a text, a coffee that you could reach out to? See, when I read this passage, I just thought, Abraham, what are you doing? Like, Lot got himself into this mess. How many people would have thought, like, you got yourself into this mess, mate, you'll learn a couple of lessons. I'll let you go, and you'll learn not to do that again. Because he got himself into this own mess. Yet doesn't this story replicate the rescue mission of Jesus for you and for me? See, Lot got himself into a mess. We got ourselves into a mess. We still get ourselves into a mess. Abram sprung into action. Jesus sprung into action. Abram went the distance. Jesus went the distance. Abram risked his life for Lot. Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his life willingly. See, as much as this we read is a lesson for us to learn to be a willing servant, this also points to the greatest willing servant. This is a prophetic picture of Jesus rescuing us and seeing that we got ourselves into a mess. And friends, 
If you're anything like me, this is a daily thing. Daily I get myself into messes. Daily I let God down. And daily Jesus says, I went the distance for you. I gave my life so that you can walk in freedom, so that you can be rescued. We'd be very quick to judge Lot and his mess. However, we're all guilty of getting into our own messes. And we're so thankful for God's rescue mission to get us back. And the fifth and final lesson, that if I could ask the worship team if you could join us, is to worship sacrificially. The final lesson from this chapter is to worship sacrificially. Because again, going through the narrative of this story, Abram goes and Abram fights and wins Lot back and all of the spoils of war, all the things, all the people, all the bits and pieces, and he brings them back. And we read in verse, chapter 14, verse 17, that after Abram returned from defeating Keter and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And so here's really an interesting point to note as we come to a close, is the narrative of this story. So look at this in chronological order. Abram's just went and won this battle. He's on his way back and he comes to Salem and he is met by two kings. He is met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the high priest. And he's met by Bera, king of Sodom. Now really hold on to this. He's met by number one, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he's met by Bera, king of Sodom. Melchizedek of Salem, Bera of Sodom, two kings. And we read that actually it is uh, the king of Sodom, Bera, who meets him first, but it is Melchizedek who speaks first. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem face Abram. And the king of Salem, what does he do? He blesses Abram. And he tells, he starts speaking a blessing over him and starts talking about it is God who gave you this victory. He honors and he glorifies God. And the king of Sodom says, here, you've done really, really well. Why don't you just take all the spoils? If we can keep the people, but you take everything else. And he tells him to honor and glorify himself. And so Abram's faced with this. Would he worship God? Or would he worship himself? Would he worship God and say, God, you give me this victory? Or would he worship himself and say, wow, I was really awesome there. See how I actually sprung into action and went and rescued Lot? Like, Because surely when he arrives in Salem, the king of Sodom would have met him with a victory parade, being like, we get everything back, thank you. He, surely Abram would have pat himself on the back and thought, wow, I'm, I actually am pretty good. The temptation here was to worship himself and accept the spoils of war. Because it would have been the normal tradition of the time. But isn't the timing of the kings making their play to Abram really interesting? Because in verse 17 we read, I'm told that Bera of Sodom meets Abram in the king's valley. And it's verse 18, you can almost picture it. Verse 18, Melchizedek jumps in there quickly and says, let me say this quick, let me say this. Blessed by be Abram by God the Most High. He almost jumps in there just before he allows the king of Sodom to speak before the king of Sodom can get in there and tempt Abram to think about himself and be tempted to take the glory of this victory for himself and his ego, Melchizedek gets in there first. Melchizedek, this high priest, gets in there and quickly reminds Abram of the giver of life. Quickly reminds him that life is a gift and the giver is good. 
quickly reminds him of all that he has been given. In fact, he actually says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. Everything that you have, Abram, is because of him. And praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Before you can get a moment, Abram, and thinking this was all about you, this was God. God has been involved in all of this story ordaining this. And you have to glorify him. Reminds him who's in control. Reminds him that God delivered his enemies. And friends, as we come to a close, we need to be Melchizedek's and we need to have Melchizedek's in our lives. You need to be a Melchizedek and you need to point people continually to Jesus to glorify him. And we need to have Melchizedek's in our lives saying, this is not about you. This has never been about me and this has never been about you. This is all about him and all glory and all honor and all praise goes on to him. Everything that you have and everything you've been given is because of him. We need to worship him sacrificially. We need to take everything that we have been given and say, this is all about you, Jesus. And we often need to get in there quickly, friends, because there is an enemy of our soul who will want to quickly distract us and tempt us to walk away from God, to take it the glory for ourselves. But we need to worship sacrificially, giving God the glory, giving God the honor, giving God the praise, not accepting the rewards for ourselves, but pointing towards God for every victory. See, the reality in our lives is very, very regularly, daily, you and I will be faced with these two kings. You and I will be faced with the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And we will be tempted. Who are you going to worship in this moment? Yourself or God? When you achieve something in life, when you impress someone, when you get a promotion, after a victory, after an answered prayer, after a good season of life, after a success in your life, you will face this intersection and say, did I get myself here or did God get me here? And we have a choice, friends. Who are we going to worship? Who are we going to worship? Do we want to worship ourselves and take it or do we worship sacrificially? And we need to decide who will we listen to because the enemy will tempt us to take the glory for ourselves. But we need to get to a place where like Melchizedek, we immediately give God the glory. And so we're going to do that right now. And we're going to worship and I really encourage you, it's, it's 8.20, we've still a little bit of time, and the guys have a couple of songs, but please, if I could encourage you, don't just let this be a passing moment where we sing a couple of songs, but let this be a moment where we say, do you know what, I'm going to take a bit of time now, and I'm going to worship you, God, sacrificially, because everything that I have in my life is from you. you. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift and so maybe your day today hasn't been great. But there are always something that we can look back on and say, God, I'm thankful for that. God, I praise you for that. God, the fact that I'm here and have breath, that I have health, that I have a roof over made, all of these things, I can thank you. But there is more than that, friends, isn't there? There's so much more that God has been good in our lives that we need to glorify him and say, I didn't get myself there. I didn't do this. We are simply vessels. And praise God that he would want to use us.